Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Live. Hello and welcome to the uh, wheatbarn.com Bible talk show. And uh, this show, this is the introductory episode, so uh, bear with us if it's uh, not very smooth or planned out. But we're uh, just, well, I should say I'm kind of experimenting with uh, doing a online uh, community Bible study, radio talk show, etc. over the Internet. So um, most of my uh, information is posted on wheatbarn.com. Uh, that's uh, the word wheat, like wheat that grows in a field, and uh, barn.com. And so you can find most of my uh, um, Christian uh, blog and information and, and references and sources and so forth there. But um, I guess we're going to just start out right away talking about the uh, um, Bible right away in the beginning, which is the best place to start, which is in the book of Genesis. But before I do that, I'm going to go ahead and say a prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time and this opportunity to uh, share your word over the uh, over the internet with uh, others, and uh, hopefully there will be people who will be able to have a chance to learn and glean information from this, from your word, um, to uh, to grow in your word, and to uh, uh, obtain life that's provided to them through your holy word, because it, it, the Bible says that uh, Jesus is the word, and the word is life. And uh, we just thank thank you for uh, Lord, we thank you for giving your word for us and providing us uh, with that eternal life that. Uh, which we can obtain from no other source. And we just bless you and, and thank you for this opportunity to share your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with um, right away at the beginning of Genesis, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what I want to talk about in this particular show is, um, I mean, most people have read the creation account of Genesis, if you're even slightly familiar with the Bible, or, or at least you've heard some of the story, the story of Adam and Eve, and the story of the six days of creation and so forth. But um, I think what a lot of people kind of miss in reading the text is, um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you don't get into the uh, um, kind of the nuances and the the finer points of the text, but there's actually two alleged creation accounts in the Bible uh, between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I say alleged because I disagree with that. I, I believe this is all the same um, information uh, by the same author, which is God. Um, but in uh, intellectual circles and universities and so forth, they have this what's called the documentary hypotheses. And what that is, is that it's this idea that, that the Bible is a composite text, and the books of the Bible are composite text, and that they're actually drawn from a variety of different earlier sources. So there might have been a, a myth or in the Middle Eastern ancient times of one story of creation, and then there might have been another similar or slightly different myth in another um, another area that had come down through history and through you know cultural uh, oral traditions and so forth, and that these got written down, and maybe these were written down hundreds of years apart or originated hundreds of years apart, but that at some point in time they were put together into a composite text, and that becomes the the Bible as you know it today. I think that's all heretical. I think that's complete heresy. I think the documentary hypothesis is, is absolutely wrong because I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, it's inspired by the Word of God, it's infallible, and um, it's God-breathed. It's something that uh, that is not a collection of myths or a collection of, uh, you know, uh, rambling stories by different cultures trying to make sense of the world around them and so forth, and, and basically relegating them to, uh, you know, very naive individuals. That, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is, is indeed the Word of God, uh, it is holy, it is God-inspired. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that um, that argument that's presented called the documentary hypothesis um, and why it's why it's a heresy and why it's wrong and why if you actually read the, the text, particularly in, in Genesis, you can clearly see that it's wrong. And, and, I'll, and I'll start with it kind of explaining it this way. Um, th- there are two stories of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But that doesn't mean that these are two, two different authors that are writing the story. 
And that doesn't mean that these two stories were from different sources, maybe hundreds of years apart in terms of their coming down into an oral tradition to be placed into a written text. On the contrary, I believe it's written by the Word of God, but what it is, is it's a different perspective, a different point of view. And if you look at the text in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, you can see, with, with a, a, uh, looking at it with a pr- proper critical analysis, that it in fact has to be the same author, and I'll explain why. Um, if I was going to describe to you, for example, say a quarter, okay, a coin, and I took a quarter out of my pocket, and I described the quarter, and I said, well, you know, on this quarter it has a, an eagle on it, and um, it's got, uh, you know, uh, the, the eagle's holding, uh, you know, something in its claws, or, you know, whatever's on the, I don't have a quarter in front of me, but you, you know what I mean, whatever's on the, the tail side of a quarter. If I begin describing that, okay, and then at a later time I describe a quarter again, I start from the beginning, but now this time I see it's got a picture of George Washington on it, okay, and it's got dates and so forth, and, and I give a completely dis- different description of a quarter. Now, if you didn't know anything about a quarter, okay, and you were given these two accounts, and, and they look on the surface of them to be completely contradictory, uh, if you didn't know what a quarter is or how it looked like, and all you, was, all you were going upon was these two different descriptions, and one says that there's an eagle on it, and the other says that there's a, a picture of George Washington on it, you might come to the conclusion of thinking that, hmm, these are two different accounts, and they must come from two different authors, and so, therefore, they must, if they're in one text, they must be a composite material from two different sources that are put into the same text and kind of woven together, okay? But in reality, we're talking, I'm talking about the same thing. I could very easily be the same person talking about a quarter just from a different point of view. I could spend time talking about a quarter from the, the tail side of it, and then I could spend time later on talking about the quarter describing the head side of it. Um, why this shows that the documentary hypotheses of multiple sources is, is a heresy is the very fact that when I'm giving that description, of, of like in the, in the case of a quarter, using that example, I'm giving it in such a way that it's specifically given to contrast two different sides of the same coin. Okay? Uh, it's, it's, the, the story is juxtaposing one side versus the other side. Okay? And that juxtaposition is a literary device to show contrast. In other words, if I was going to tell a tale from one point of view, and then I wanted to give you the other side of the story, the completely opposite point of view, or, or you know, a, a, a tie-in to that story, but from a different, different side, um, I can do that. But by doing that, I would show you that it has to be the same author that's giving both stories, because he's using that literary device of juxtaposition. He's purposely contrasting one story from the other. Okay. Now, if, if I if I had given you a, a story of what a quarter looked like, and one I said, well, it's uh, like this fuzzy round ball, and it uh, rolls down the road like a tumbleweed or something like that. Okay. And then I gave you another story, and I said, no, a quarter is a little metal round coin, and it has a picture of a head on one side and an eagle on the other, something like that. Okay. Those two stories would be wouldn't be a juxtaposition. They would not be contrasting each other, right? Because one has nothing to do with the other. They're completely different, completely separate. Obviously, you could tell these are kind of two different stories or two different accounts because they there's no relation between these two stories. But when you give two different accounts that are two points of view to the same story, okay, and they're opposite in a sense, and they're and they're contrasting each other. That's a juxtaposition that's a literary device that would suggest it's from the same author, not from a different author. If I describe to you what black looks like and then I spend more time describing you what the color white looks like, okay, that's a juxtaposition that's contrasting two different sides. That would suggest that I'm using a literary device in order to tell both accounts, which means the same author is telling the story, right? Because otherwise it'd be completely different stories. So that's what's going on in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is a juxtaposition or contrast looking at the same account from two different sides. But more importantly, you can see that there's a relationship, that these aren't just completely two arbitrary stories that were put in the text, one taken from you know, one story and then you know, that has nothing to do with the other and then they're just kind of mashed together. No, they're two different 
stories that specifically complement and contrast each other in such a way that you can tell that the literary device of of that juxtaposition uh, is instilled in the text. Therefore, it has to be the same author. There's a purpose behind placing those two stories against each other like that. And I'll get into that in a second. But that's the point I want to make, that why the, why the documentary hypothesis is, is heretical and why these aren't different source materials. Because um, the person who's writing Genesis 1, which is God, wrote Genesis 2 in reflection, in direct reflection of Genesis 1. And the person who wrote Genesis 2, uh, and vice versa, the person who wrote Genesis 1 is writing in reflection of Genesis 2. They, they complement each other in such a way that you can tell that the author was directly aware of both accounts at the time of writing it. If they were completely separate stories, if they had no contrasting relationship like that, and they were just one story told one thing, one story the other, and there was no you know, two sides of the same coin kind of thing going on, then you could make the argument that possibly these are different source texts and these are coming from different, different uh, places and time and different people and so forth, but that's not what's going on. And I'm going to show you now that that's not what's going on so you can see that this is the same author employing that literary device of juxtaposition and contrast and is well aware of both texts when both chapters are written. So I'll, I'll go ahead and get into that now and you can see why, why the documentary hypothesis falls through. So let's start with Genesis chapter 1, okay? Um, and, and I don't know if I'll go through and read the whole chapter. I might, might do that, but... Um, I mean, you can do that too in your own time and and uh, see what the differences are. But basically, Genesis chapter 1 is a sequential account of creation starting from before the first day uh, all the way down through the seventh day of creation, which is the day of rest. Okay, And then each day it gives a, an itemization of all the things that God makes all the way down to the seventh day. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it starts again in a, in a sense, with, with a, a form of creation. But it gives a more personal account. And some of the order of things on the surface seem to be different than the order of things that happen in Genesis chapter 1 to the untrained eye, if you don't really get into the text, if you don't really listen to what the Word of God is saying. Uh, and you just kind of gloss over things. But that, of course, is wrong. That, that There is a, a little bit of different order, but the text, if you really, really listen to it, it'll explain why. Um, for this reason, the people that believe the documentary hypothesis, the, the multiple source theory, will say obviously these had to be two different uh, authors that wrote, wrote Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 because the order is different between the two. And, and you know, uh, man is created first in Genesis chapter 2, then the animals. In Genesis chapter 1, the animals are created first, then man. In Genesis chapter 2, you have, uh, um, you know, the, the birds coming out of the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, you have them coming out of the sea and so forth. So you have this... this uh, um, kind of strange differentiation between the, the um, how things happen between the two chapters, and because of that, they say, well, there must be two different two different creation accounts. There must be two different uh, stories of what's going on here. But that's not what's going on if you really dive into the text, which we're going to do now. So let, let's start with Genesis chapter one and, and try to see a couple couple of these itemizations here. First of all, if you notice in Genesis chapter one, the word for God is different than the word for God used in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it's referred to as the Lord God. Okay? And the Lord God is an attribute of God's character because there's many names for God in ancient Hebrew. Um, Jehovah Jireh, God is my provider. Um, you know, they, they, they will use a number of different names to reveal a character or an attribute of, of, of the Lord. Okay? In Genesis chapter 1, it's more of a generic name for God. It's Elohim, um, which is different from the name for God given us in Genesis chapter 2. And again, for that reason, they think, oh, well, these must be two different authors. No, there's a reason why Genesis chapter 2 is using the name the Lord God and Genesis chapter 1 it isn't. And that's because in Genesis chapter 2, the character and the attribute that's being revealed about God changes. Okay, In Genesis chapter 1, we have God. One God, uh, there's only one God, um, and He is the Creator of all things. Okay, I'm, I'm a Trinitarian, so I believe in three gods and or three persons and one God, but there's only one God. The Lord, that God, is one. 
in Genesis chapter 2, we get into, from going from the one guy, we begin to discover a certain attribute or a certain character about God, and that's when it gets into talking about the Lord God. And what you'll notice is that not only does it talk about that in terms of the name of God, but that attribute also carries throughout the entire description of the text in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? And I'll show you how that works. In Genesis chapter 1, we have a sequential order of the naming of things. But this is kind of a creation of the, the earth as a whole. All right? Um, on the first day, he creates light. and the second day, he creates the sky. Uh, on the third day, he uh, creates the, um, the waters are gathered together in one place, and dry land appears, and then uh, plants grow. On the fourth day, he creates the sun, moon, and the stars, and, and basically um, ordinances for being able to keep track of time. On the fifth day, he creates the uh, birds and the fishes. On the sixth day, he creates animals and man, and then on the seventh day, he rests. Well, I should say, let me back up on a caveat here, because that, that might be a little bit uh, questionable. On the sixth day, it says that uh, he made man in his image. Okay? So I, I want to be a little careful there, just in case, because it doesn't specifically say he created man. Although I you know, believe man was created on the sixth day, but it says that he made man in his image. So I don't want to read something in the text that isn't literally specifically in that, in Genesis chapter 1. Um, so, so anyways, um, but Genesis chapter 1, if, if we get into the, all the way to day 6, we get to the creation of man. And uh, let me go to that uh, particular verse. Um, I'll start in verse Genesis uh, 1 verse 26 okay and God said let us make man in our image after our likest and let them uh, them plural have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth now dominion okay uh, power authority and rule so he's giving man power and authority over all the the cattle, the fowl, all the, all the animal, all the life forms that God created on the earth. Okay. So God created man in his own image, and in, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Plural there. Okay. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish, which means to refill or fill, rather. Replenish the earth and subdue it. And have, uh, and, okay, replenish the earth and subdue it. Subdue it, okay. Um, to rule over, to conquer, in a sense and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is in the face of all the earth and every tree which is in the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat and to every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air and to every uh, thing that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. So man gets the, to eat all the uh, fruits and vegetables and the and so forth, apples and everything, and then all the uh, the animals get to eat all the green grass and, and shrubs and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so, and God saw that uh, everything had been made, and behold, it was very good, and that was the evening in the morning, in the evening in the morning was the sixth day. Okay. So God is, is making man on the sixth day, and he's blessing him and, and telling him to be fruitful, multiply, and go out and have dominion and rule over and subdue the earth, conquering, okay. And, and we're talking about the whole earth now, right? So it's it's going out as a conqueror, going out ruling dominion, um, lording it over the entire earth. It's it's an external, it, it's spreading out over the planet, conquering basically. It's an external thing. Okay, um, this is the kind of I would describe it as like the hunter gatherer kind of mindset. Okay, that they're going out like uh, conquerors hunt, hunting over the earth and so forth. In Genesis chapter two. And this is where we get into the juxtaposition, the contrast. In Genesis chapter 2, everything shifts from being this, you know, outward conquering, hunter-gatherer, dominion type description of the creation of man into the domesticated, agricultural, uh, civilized form of man. Okay? And and I'll show you how that works here in a second. If we read in Genesis chapter 2, it says that, um, we'll go to verse 4. And it says, these are the, the generations, the heavens, the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Now, that word plant in the field in Hebrew, okay, what they're talking about is a farmer's field, not just like a meadow or a prairie or something like that. 
The, the specific word in Hebrew is an agricultural type plant, okay? A domesticated, something that is sown and grown by a farmer, all right? As opposed to something that's growing out in the wild, all right? There's a difference there. And the, and the, the choice of words in the Hebrew makes that distinction, but it comes through in the English where it says plant of the field because it's referring to not just a plant, not just a wild, you know, berry bush or something like that, but a plant of a domesticated farmer's field. Okay, that's what it's referring to here. And every plant of the field before it was earth, it was in the earth. And every herb of the field before it grew. Again, domesticated, agricultural farmer's field. Okay. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Okay. Again, the description there, not causing it to rain upon the earth and not a man to till the ground, that's a description of domesticated agricultural. Not hunter-gatherer, not going out and having dominion and control and hunting down the animals and kill them for food or anything like that. Okay, It's talking about people who were a type of description of man who was in an agricultural, civilized, domesticated type setting. Okay, And the crops that he's growing are agricultural, civilized, domesticated type crops. Not wild crops, not hunter-gathering berries, that kind of thing. Okay, And, and the description of man there is it's, it doesn't say that there was not a man on the earth. Okay, it says that there was not a man to till the ground. This is a specific type of man. It's saying there was not a farmer, a not an, an agrarian. Uh, you know, the, in Genesis chapter one, God creates man, but He creates man that would have a dominion, man that would go over forth and rule the earth. In Genesis chapter two, everything that's given here is talking about being civilized, domesticated, agricultural, etc. So that there's not a man to till the ground doesn't necessarily mean that there's not man, because in Genesis chapter 1, he's creating man. I'm not saying, per se, that these are two different creations of man, but I'll make an argument possibly for that in a moment here. Um, but it does say that here in Genesis chapter 2 that there was not a man to till the ground. Now, if we back up for a second, I'm going to read the, the start of Genesis chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. This is verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of them. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day uh, from all his work which he had made. Okay, so on the seventh day, he completed making the earth. The earth is made at this point. The earth is not yet made on day one. It wasn't made and it wasn't completed being made until day six, and then he rested on day seven. So uh, let's continue in verse three. It says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which he, God had created. And that word created is bara. That's the word that they use in verse 1, okay, when he begins to start his work. And made, and made is a completion standpoint. So he both created it and he made it, okay. And I'll talk a little bit about the distinction between those two in a moment. But first, well, I just want you to understand here that there's a start of the work and then there's a completion of the work. And the completion of the work is when those things are made, past tense. And in verse 4, it starts out and it says, and these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they, uh, when they were created. Okay, that's, that's one word. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All right? Now, the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens is a past, day, uh, is a past tense term. So the earth is completed at this point. Whatever day this is that God is that it's referring to, in the day that when the Lord uh, God created the earth and the uh, okay. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this day that God made the earth and the heaven doesn't necessarily have to be day one. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a literary device just to talk about that first week of creation or in a general time period. Okay, It's possible that what they're talking about here, or what the Lord's talking about here, is day six or day seven of creation because it could be the completion day, the day that all the things are made. And so he's finished making the hunter-gatherer, the, the, the wilderness type of, of earth, okay? And now he's making domesticated man to put in a garden to separate it from the external wilderness world and to create civilized, you know, uh, a lordship type setting as opposed to a wild type setting, okay? Not the hunter-gatherers, but the... the uh, farmers, the agricultural, the domesticated types, all right? So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, I, I actually believe it's day six that he's talking about here because that's the day 
that God finished his work. That's the day he made the earth. He rested on day seven, but he finished it on day six. Okay? And now let's continue on. It says, in every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, and the Lord God had caused it to, uh, did not cause it to rain upon the earth, and there was not an end until the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And, okay, now what day in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1 did God create man? Day 6, right? So if we're talking again here about the day that the Lord created the heavens and the earth, it would suggest we're probably talking about day 6 here, right? Because he says there's not these things, but he goes on to say that, and the Lord God formed man on the dust of the ground. So again, most likely Genesis chapter 2 is just referring to day 6, whereas Genesis chapter 1 is referring to days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Well, actually 6, because day 7 doesn't start till the first part of Genesis chapter 2. But, but the first six days of creation are in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a focus on day 6. Okay. And there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. Now, again, planting a garden is domesticated crops. Okay. On day three in Genesis chapter one, it's, and I'll go to that so you can understand the verse here. Uh, we'll start in verse nine. It says, and then God, this is day three now, Genesis chapter one, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And he saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and fruit yielding uh, and fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed was in itself on the earth, and it was so. Now, God can make plants and so forth in the wilderness, okay? Um, but that's different from the description we start out with Genesis chapter 2, which is the plants of the field. And plants of the field are either in a farmer's field or a garden, okay? And so the Lord God's planting a garden. Um, I believe that this is something different and separate from those plants that are listed in Genesis chapter 1. He's talking specifically about a specific garden. I believe that there were plants already at that time, but, but when the Lord God is planting a garden, this is something different in Genesis chapter than the, the plants, the wild plants that are growing in Genesis chapter 1. So it says, picking up in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the, the man whom he had formed, and again, the, the term here all throughout Genesis chapter 2 is Lord God, which again is the idea of man submitting to the authority of God. It's submitting, domesticated, servant, obedient, as opposed to a generic term of God and man being wild, hunter-gatherer, taking dominion, etc. Okay? So, uh, again... Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground he made to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is, this is one of those verses that they try to say, oh, see, God creates man first in Genesis chapter 2, and then the plants, but in Genesis chapter 1, the plants are created on day 3, and man's created on day 6, so therefore they contradict each other. No, they're talking about two different things here. Genesis chapter 1 is talking about the creation of the earth as a whole in the wilderness. Genesis chapter 2 is talking about the creation of the garden of domesticated man, domesticated crops, domesticated plants, and, and domesticated animals. And it's even very specific in that, in the description of God being the Lord God, which submits, you know, being domesticated under authority, etc. And that the names for those plants and animals refer to a, a, a type of agrarian or farmer's field plants and animals and so forth, which is different from the names used in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And the description of man in Genesis chapter 2 refers to a man that, who would till the field, as opposed to the generic term for man in Genesis chapter 1. So it's, it's, it's the creation and then the addition of an attribute. Okay? The name of God is the addition of attribute of being Lord. The name of man is the addition of attribute of becoming a farmer. The name of the, the crops and the plants have the tradition, the addition of the attribute of becoming um, domesticated. Okay, all of this stuff 
happens after Genesis chapter one, because first you have to have the the uh, the source material before you begin to apply attributes to it, if you will. Okay. But this description of Genesis chapter two is not a contradiction of Genesis chapter one. It's adding on now to Genesis chapter one and talking about a specific type of creation, specifically what's going on in the Garden of Eden. Okay. So out of the ground, the Lord God uh, made to grow every tree that is good, uh, pleasant for sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the Garden of Eden, and the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Okay. So, and then uh, it goes on to say that uh, God caused a river to grow, to flow out of Eden, and uh, then he gave a commandment. Uh, then he, t- he took man and put him in the Garden of Eden. He actually says that twice. First it says he, he takes man, he puts him in the Garden of Eden, then he causes the uh, river to, to flow out of Eden, which parts into four parts. And then it gets a verse again that says, the Lord God took man to put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, which is kind of interesting because the first time he mentions putting man in the Garden of Eden, he doesn't have a commandment for man to do anything. But the second time that verse is put there, it says he's put there to dress it and keep it. Now, one question I have is, did Adam wander off at this point? Because um, when it talks about, because there's two verses saying that he's put in the Garden of Eden. So is it a reiteration of the first verse? Well, it's an interesting question because the first time he put man in the garden, it just is a generic term, but the second time he adds an attribute. And he says, and he put him there to dress it and to keep it. Again, um, just like uh, going back with uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, adding that attribute of being domesticated and agrarian and so forth, same thing happens with those two verses. It says, um, uh, verse 8 says, or excuse me, let me, let me back up here. Verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man on the dust of the ground and breathed in the nostrils of breath of life, and man became a living soul. And uh, then verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay? That's verse 8. There he put the man whom he had formed. Then he mentions the river, the, the flowing out of the garden, that divides into four parts. And then verse 15, again, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So we're adding this agricultural attribute on the second rendition of putting man in the Garden of Eden. Same, same thing that happens between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, adding this agricultural domesticated farmer type attribute to it, if you understand what's going on here. And this is why I'm saying that whoever wrote Genesis chapter 1, which is God, is the same person who wrote Genesis chapter 2, because you can see that what he's doing with Genesis chapter 1. You can see that he's specifically applying these attributes in reflection of Genesis chapter 1. Meaning, these are not two different texts that came centuries apart from different sources. Okay? Because whoever's writing Genesis chapter 2, which is God, okay, is doing this in full knowledge of Genesis chapter 1. And is carrying on the same literary device from Genesis chapter 1 over into Genesis chapter 2. Just like if I were to talk about two sides of the same coin, okay, it's, it's a juxtaposition. It's, a, it's something that would suggest it has to be the same author for both texts, which is God, which is why the documentary hypothesis is a total heresy and is absolutely not true. So anyways, uh, getting back into this, this is the Lord God took the man, uh, put him in the garden, and he addressed it to keep it. And the Lord God commanded uh, the man, saying, Of every tree that thou shalt eat, uh, of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for the day that thou eatest of it thou shalt truly die. Okay. So he's given, he's given commandments. Now, um, first he puts him in the garden, then he puts him in the garden with a, a commandment, a positive commandment, what to do to dress it and to keep it. Okay? Um, and, and, you know, people will often say, you know, well, Adam and Eve had one commandment in the garden, you don't eat fruit of the tree, knowledge, good, evil. No, that's not true. The, their first commandment was to dress and keep the garden. That's the first. Um, and, and, and even before that, um, you could make the case that uh, their commandment was to stay in the garden because God put them there. And he put him there for a purpose. And so if God put man in the garden, obviously he wanted him there. And if man wandered off or anything like that, then maybe he was in violation of that. Um, and, and I don't know that Adam did, but it is interesting that that verse is in there twice. The first time it says he put him in the garden of Eden. And then the second time he puts him in there to, to, to dress it and to keep it. So did he leave and he put him in there a second time? Or is it just a reiteration uh, of that verse? Well, I don't know, because if you, if you look at the, what's between those two verses, the description of the river flowing out from Eden, Eden, it begins to talk about where those four rivers divided out to, and it talks about four different lands, okay? 
So maybe Adam went exploring at this point. And then God put him back in the garden, right? And then maybe uh, on top of that, God also gave him tasks to do for wandering off. These are all speculations. I, I might be reading a little too much into the text here. Um, but that, you know, that's one of those things that kind of crossed my mind when I'm reading that is, you know, why are those two verses there that God put him in there twice? You know, every, everything, in Bible, everything in the Bible is very, very specific. And has a very specific purpose for being there. There's nothing in the Bible that isn't there without a purpose. And if you see, come across something in the Bible that just seems out of the ordinary, doesn't like why is it there? There's a hidden treasure behind that when you figure out why it's there. And it will reveal amazing things if you can discover the, per, the, the, the reason why it's there. It really will put your point of view in the text in the right frame to be able to understand it rightfully. Okay, um, so everything in the Bible is there for a specific purpose. That's why this book is miraculous and God-breathed and not just a creation of man. I mean, the Bible is written by, you know, 40 different authors and three different continents over the course of 1,500 years. Yet it all pieces together perfectly in such a way that it's impossible that man wrote this book. This book is from God. Okay. So, so... What we see there, again, is this juxtaposition between these two, two different types of creation of man. Okay? Now, as we get on a little further down the road here, we have a creation of Eve. All right? And it says, and Adam gave names to all the animals. Oh, here's another example where they, they say this is a contradiction. Um, out of the ground, I'll start in verse 19. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and, every, and, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called the living creature, that was the name thereof. Okay. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and all the fowl of the air and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep, deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs uh, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib uh, which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, and not, uh, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay. Uh, Adam's created first in Genesis chapter 2, and then the animals are created in Adam names. In Genesis chapter 1, the animals are created first, and then man, and then man blesses them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Um, and it says that male and female made he them. Okay? So is this a contradiction? No. Because the animals that are created for Adam in Genesis chapter 2 are, again, beasts of the field. They are animals that are agricultural. They're animals that are specific to Adam's situation in the garden. Okay? The animals created in Genesis chapter 1 are the animals of the wilderness. So people that are saying, oh, well, there must be, uh, there must have been dinosaurs chomping on, you know, with sharp teeth and stuff like that in the Garden of Eden. No, I, I disagree with that. that. That Those are not domesticated animals. Okay, those are animals of the wilderness. All right? Um, in the Garden, it was probably cattle, horses, chickens, stuff like that. But none of those things were going to stop Adam from being lonely. Uh, and they weren't really going to be good companionship for him. The only thing that was going to be uh, fulfill that uh, purpose in Adam's life was Eve, his wife. Okay. So, again, this whole concept that there's these two different accounts of creation, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, from two different sources hundreds of years apart, which is this documentary hypothesis that they teach in universities, is an absolute heresy and an absolute lie. There is one story, one consistent story, by one author, and it carries on throughout the entire books of the Bible. And I'll tell you what, I always am constantly going back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4. Those four chapters really lay out the whole story from there on out for everything. I mean, there's, there's so much rich material, so much rich material in those texts that I keep going back to that, that 
I mean, you wouldn't believe how much hidden treasure is found in those those first several chapters of the Bible that, that really lay out the position for everything. There's a reason why Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the, the, the earth, and, and you find that out when you read Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay? So... So yeah, that, that's kind of the point that I wanted to make on this is that um, there there is no there is no contradiction in the Bible. Now, let, let me take that back a little bit here. There's not a illogical contradiction in the Bible because con- contradiction basically means opposite. Well, diction is is writing, okay, and then contra contrary would be you know something that's opposed or opposite of each other. You can have things that are opposite of each other, but that doesn't mean they're non-logical. I mean, the black is the opposite of white. That doesn't mean that you know that they both don't exist, okay? <laughs> or that, that it defies the laws of the universe for them both to exist. No, as a matter of fact, it would define the laws of the universe for them contrast not to exist, okay? Um, what makes things, what makes contradictions appear to be falsehoods is if they exist in a combined format, right? So in other words, if I said uh, outside right now, it's dark out, and uh, outside right now it's light out, okay? You'd say, well, how can both those things be at the same time? That's that's a contradiction, right? Well, actually, it's true. It depends on what side of the planet you're on. It is a light out outside if you're on one side of the planet, and it's dark outside if you're on the other, right? So it's not a contradiction. Um, but unless you think about it in those terms, you would think it's a contradiction because you think they're both that way at the same time. But here's the point I want to make about a contradiction is that um, things that appear contradictory they're not contradictory if they're placed in their proper positions. If they are divided and separated apart and maintain those compartmentalizations, now they're not contradictions. In fact, they're necessary for creation to exist. For example, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven would be an an opposite, uh, uh, it would be a contradictory thing to the earth. Okay, They're both created in the beginning. But what makes them able to both exist without, you know, self-annihilating is the fact that they are kept separate and compartmentalized. That is, that is actually the, the fundamental nature of creation, is to create, separate, divide, and then continue the process and repeat. Okay? That's, that's what the flower of life, basically, how it blossoms. It's, it's this process of taking something, you know, cellular division. You look at it... Uh, um, all man starts with one cell, and then we break down and multiply in different cells, and then those different cells begin to get different attributes. One, you know, some become brain cells and heart cells and liver cells and so forth, and it's all, well, it all starts with that single point of beginning, okay? Um, the only way that, that that all works is if things are separating in, into their proper parts. Um, what God commanded Adam and Eve not to do in the beginning in the garden was to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. Good and evil are contradictory things. They are separated and kept apart. Okay? Um, and it's interesting also that it's referred to as being in the center of the garden, in the middle of the garden. Okay? To the, the word knowledge there, knowledge of good and evil, that's an experiential type knowledge. In other words, obviously, there was a awareness of good and evil because God used the terms for Adam and Eve to tell them not to eat of that tree. And it wouldn't make sense if the, those terms aren't at least understood to mean something specific. So if God says don't eat of the tree of the garden, of, uh, don't eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil in the midst of the garden, okay? If he's using the term good and evil, then obviously that information can be conveyed and it has meaning Adam and Eve, and you can understand that there's a meaning behind that word good and the meaning behind the word evil, but that's different between experiential knowledge. Okay? Like, I, I, can, I can read a manual on how to fly, fly an airplane. Okay? And I could know that manual inside and out and then read that textbook and understand and be able to take a perfect test on how to fly an airplane on a written exam and get everything perfect and know all that information. But that is totally different from having experiential knowledge of how to fly an airplane, of actually having flight time, being in the sky behind the, the, the helm of an aircraft and, and, and actually knowing the nuances of what it's like to actually fly. Okay? There's two different types of knowledge there. And the, the knowledge that 
that's being talked about here. Um, do not eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That type of knowledge is an experiential knowledge, not just a commandment or a informational type knowledge. Because God gives the commandment at the beginning. He says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're aware of the tree, but they did not experience the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And that knowledge, that term for knowledge, it's the same word that's used when they're talking about like Adam knew his wife. It's knowing in the biblical sense. It's two becoming one things, one thing, okay? The two becoming one flesh. It's intimate knowledge. It's the recombination, if you will, all right? So if Adam and Eve were to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, they would be experiencing two things that cannot coincide with each other. They're oil and water. They, God separated them and kept them apart for a specific reason. Good and evil do not mix. And that knowledge of good and evil mixing together would bring forth death because they cannot, they cannot coexist in, in one singular form. The, 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 it, would, it would undo creation to do that, you understand, because creation is all about separating out things and, and the compartmentalizing into different facets and adding additional attributes, etc., etc. And if you recombinate those two things together, just like matter and antimatter coming together, it self-annihilates because you can't have those two things in the same thing. It, would, it, it wouldn't make sense. And that, and that actually, when people argue about contradictions in the Bible, that's kind of what they're doing. They're, they're, they're trying to say that, oh, there's these two things that don't exist together, they don't work together. You know, the, it says one thing over here and it says one thing over there, and they don't make sense, and so therefore it's a lie, right? And they're trying to destroy the validity of those things, yet they don't understand what they're doing because that's not what the text is. The, the text says, has contradictions that are logical that work because they're compartmentalized and set in their proper places. Okay? They're not recombinated. And, and there really is no contradiction to the Bible in, in the sense that most people mean it. It's just that they don't understand the Bible. Okay? So when Adam, God said that the wages of that is death. When, when that's experiential knowledge of, of, uh, of good and evil. Uh, however, even though the wages of sin is death, God created a plan of salvation for mankind so that we could be saved even from the wages of our sin, which is death. And that is a sacrifice for someone else to take that, that sin upon them and to experience that death for us. And that is Jesus Christ. And that story is all throughout the first few chapters of Genesis. You see, to come in the presence of the Lord God in a state of sin is to be in a state of judgment because unholiness cannot come in the presence of God. The, the, you know, it, it, it says when Christ will return that the, basically the, the wicked will be destroyed in the brightness of his coming. Okay? To stand in that glory in a state of sinfulness, to stand in the presence of God and, 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 and to be known in that, that, that state of sin is a self-destructive thing because it, it cannot exist. Good and evil cannot exist together, okay? And God is good. And so, therefore, those that hide from the light because their deeds are wicked are running for a very specific reason because intuitively in your soul you know that when you're in a state of sin you don't want to be exposed to that light. You want to run and hide, and actually God allows for a time, separation, to allow people to repent and to clean them up so that they can eventually come back into the presence of God. And the reason, part of the reason why Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, I believe, in addition to being a punishment, was for the sake of their salvation, because had they entered into a, the presence of God in their sinful state, God's commandment was the wages of sin is death. And God does not lie. And so therefore, if they're in a state of sin and they're in the presence of God, that sentence is going to be carried out. Therefore, God gave them time before that judgment were to take place in order to have salvation and for mankind to repent. And the, that, that's carried out in the text in Genesis chapter 3 when, it, when Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden. They intuitively knew that. There was a fear upon them. Because first, they were naked and not ashamed. 
first they could come before the presence of the Lord without feeling a sense of shame because they didn't have sin on them. But once they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now they had sin on themselves. Now, in the, in the light of, of God's glory, they would experience shame. And specifically, it said that the wages of that sin is death. So they had reason to be fearful. And they hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden and they tried to cover up. That's what it is. They sewed, sewed together fig, tree, fig leaves and so forth and they tried to cover up their sin. And isn't that what man always does when they sin? They, they, when, you get, when you've done something wrong and you're fearful of getting caught for it, you try to, the, the fallen nature of man is you try to cover it up. And the reason why you try to cover it up is because you don't want to experience the judgment of what you of getting caught and 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 the repercussions of, of what you know that you did is wrong, and so they tried to cover up with fig leaves, but God provided them something else to cover up for the time being until uh, true salvation could come through Jesus Christ, and what God provided them to cover up wasn't the the leaves of plants. Uh, it says that God provided them the skin of animals to cover up. Okay. As a, as a clothing for them. And then he cast them out of his presence. And again, this starts the whole process eventually of salvation. Now, Christ is the lamb who's slain from the foundation of the world. For them to, for Adam and Eve to receive the skins of animals as a covering for their shame begs the question that what about the animal who had the skin originally? What happened to it? Right? It would suggest to me from the text that an animal lost its life to provide clothing as a covering for Adam and Eve so that they would not be exposed in their shame, allowing them time to repent and, and learn the way of the Lord and so forth, and, and, and ultimately until the ultimate sacrifice comes along through Jesus Christ to cover our sins under his blood so that we can enter into the presence of God. Right. So, so Adam and Eve knew from the beginning that plants and animals were not a proper sacrifice to appease the Lord. Uh, God provided the proper sacrifice. He provided them a covering of animal skin, and I believe an animal lost its life. And when Adam and Eve's children came along, Cain and Abel, okay, and it was time to bring sacrifices to the Lord uh, because there's a process in place here of bringing, bringing the, the a portion of, the, of your labors and so forth before the Lord. That's set throughout all history, tithing and so forth. Um, when Cain and Abel came before the Lord, Cain brought plants. He brought the fruit of his labor. He brought uh, his own works, his, 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 the sweat of his brow, his, something he did and he built in his own pride and he was proud of and he thought that that was going to appease God. Okay? And he placed those plants there, but Cain knew better. He should have known better because he knew from the beginning that plants was no proper covering to appease the Lord because Adam and Eve tried that in the Garden of Eden when they tried to cover up with the fig leaves. But God gave them a different type of covering. He gave them a covering of animal skins. Now Abel brought a lamb. Abel brought the proper type of sacrifice, and he knew better. And what he did pleased God, but what, what Cain did did not please God. In addition to that, Let's think about the difference between the, the, the two sacrifices here with Cain and Abel. In the case of Abel, when he sacrificed a, a, a sheep that he cared for and he loved for to bring him before the Lord, here, here is uh, Abel out watching the flocks, taking care of them, loving them, feeding them, making sure that they, that they uh, live and grow healthy and, and protecting them from the wilderness and any wild animals and, all, and so forth. When, when Cain brings forth a sacrifice of a sheep that he loves and cared for and he experiences what it is for uh, something that he loves and cared for to die or to be given to the Lord to, as a sacrifice, okay, he experienced and saw and felt what sin does and that sin kills mankind. Sin is destructive. It, it is the wages of sin is death for man. Okay, he felt what God felt when man sins, knowing that the people that God created, that He cares for, and He loves for, and He fed, 
and he provided shelter and protection, that if they should sin and die, what it feels like in God's heart to lose one of his, his children. And in the case of Abel, by doing what he did in taking care of the sheep and bringing forth the sheep, he then, through that sacrifice, learned and experienced what God felt in his heart by giving that sacrifice. And so he learned what sin does and how it leads to death and how it affects mankind and how horrible sin is and how it makes God's heart feel when we sin because it hurts us and ultimately it causes our own destruction and because God loves us, how it hurts his heart to see us go through that. Okay. Cain never learned any of that. Cain went out and went in the field and worked hard by the sweat of his brow and and performed labor and brought forth a portion of his fruit and said, Ah, look at look at what I did. Look at my works. Look at how hard I worked. You know, I, I brought these great things and here you go, you can have some of them. This is everything I did. Cain was trying to save himself or obtain the favor of the Lord through works, through his personal works. But there is nothing we can do because our works are like filthy rags. Okay. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves by our own works. It is only by the sacrifice of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, from Jesus Christ, who covers up our sin, that we actually obtain freedom from that from the wages of death caused by our sin. And so that's why I believe that that God did not look favorably upon the sacrifice of Cain, but he did look favorably upon the sacrifice of Abel. And so here we have then the, the first great family feud or family conflict, uh, dysfunctionality, where you have uh, Cain being downcast and rising up and slaying Abel. And that sets forth the whole sequence of God's children versus the children of the devil throughout, throughout all time because those that are the children of pride, that are the children of works and so forth, want to oppress and rise up and slay God's children who are children after God's heart, who are caring and loving and, and, and uh, want to repent and turn away from sin and are not trying to justify themselves by their own works, but recognize that it is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that our sins are remitted and that we're covered under the blood. Our sins are washed away and covered under the blood and made white as snow because of what Christ did on the cross, not because of anything that we can do. No work we can perform, no labor we can produce will ever justify us. Only the sacrifice of Christ justifies us. And all of this is put forth in the first four books of Genesis, and it carries out throughout the whole story of the whole Bible, which is why it's one common theme and one common motif, and more importantly, one common author from beginning to end for the entire text and why there is no way this book was run, written by anything other than the influence of the Holy Spirit and the direct inspiration of God through his prophets and through, the, through his servants to put it down into text for our, our learning and our generation so that we can come to know the Lord. And there's so much more that I could get into this, but uh, I, I think um, for the sake of time here, we're about an hour into the show, so I think this is a maybe a good good end point, but um, that's the main point I wanted to get in here is that, that don't listen to the ideas and the heresies that man will come up, particularly those who profess them uh, to be wise, but they made themselves fools. Those at the universities will tell you the earth is millions of years old and so forth, um, not realizing how their own bias is affecting their, their, uh, their views and their out, uh, outcomes of their quote-unquote science. Um, this book is real. The Lord is real, and anybody who truly wants to come to know the Lord and read this book, if you knock and you seek, you, you will find him. I can promise you that. Those that uh, seek him, he will be found by him. But when you seek him, seek him with humbleness, because he's God and you're not. Seek him with a heart like Abel, where you want to know the Lord out of love, not out of your own works and pride. And that's when you'll find the Lord. So thank you for listening to, to this uh, Bible study. And uh, if you uh, want to find out more information, you can check out our website at wheatbarn.com. 
But I appreciate you all uh, coming to uh, listen, and uh, I hope in the future uh, we'll uh, get some more viewers here as well. But uh, feel free to join in, ask questions at any point in time. If you do come upon a live show, um, we're going to try to do these. Uh, I'll have a schedule in the future, but you can check weedbarn.com to see when future episodes are going to be scheduled. But I appreciate you, and God bless everyone uh, for listening to this episode, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.